This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. In 2019, the American Psychological Association issued guidelines saying that traditional masculinity can actually hurt boys. The guidelines, as the New York Times reported, posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ideology are often negatively affected in terms of mental and physical health. Now, first of all, what is wrong with traditional masculinity? And second of all, what happens to a culture when it tells boys that becoming men in the normal sense is harmful. In fact, it's more important than ever that boys and men in our culture and women and girls understand what the Bible has to say about what a real man is. So we're going to talk about that today with Dr. Tim Clinton, who is president of the American Association of Christian Counselors and executive director of the James Dobson Family Institute. He's also co-author of the new book with Max Davis called Take It Back, Reclaiming Biblical Manhood for the Sake of Marriage, Family and Culture. Tim, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? Hi, Janet. Uh, It's been a little while, but uh, actually, I'm happy to be with you. Oh, glad you're here. Why has there been such a beatdown on men, as you say in the book, and all things masculine of late? What is going on, broadly speaking? You know, society, uh, uh, you know, over the last few decades, basically portrays men as buffoons, uh, distant, disengaged, lazy, cold, porn addicts, bad husbands. You, you You get the mix. And now, uh, like your intro stated, the APA comes out and talks about how masculinity is toxic. That's the new word. Yeah. That being uh, masculine is actually toxic. Toxic. I, I think, in a lot of ways, society has to eradicate the influence of men in order to accomplish whatever agenda they're trying to get done. But at the end of the day, Janet, you know this. The research is profound on how significant men are, why they matter, that men matter, that dads matter, and. Um, uh, what we've got to figure out is how to step in and call men to be better men. Masculinity is not toxic. Behavior is toxic. Right. And uh, we can talk a lot more about that. Yeah. And I'm curious about something that you just mentioned, because I think you really hit on something when you say that the culture in many ways, APA and the like, really want to get rid of men or masculinity, as it were, maybe not, you know, directly, they want to eliminate men. But why do they want to get rid of masculinity? Why is traditional masculinity, as we might define it, so problematic for some of those people who are on the left and APA and pushing this kind of anti-man ideology? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with just the influence factor. Um, Men... Uh, do matter, and they are defenders, they're protectors, they're providers, and so much more. Uh, you know, we started out the book uh, talking about um, how men in a lot of ways have, have given up ground. We started, we wrote the book in a way that would be inviting and engaging to men, short chapters, etc., but we started with the story of George Foreman. Foreman goes out there, he wins the heavyweight title early in his career, tries to fight his way through, loses everything, and then 20 years later, 
um, does this comeback thing. And I, when I think about men, we've had a lot taken away from us. Society pounds us. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the men grew up without dads, and we lost our influence. You hear what I'm saying? Yes. And then men, I think, gave up a lot uh, in this respect. They did abandon their families. Um, uh, you, when you look at the stats out there, like 40% of America's kids are going to grow up in a home where their biological father uh, doesn't live at some point in their life. Mm. Um, men do struggle with issues. But so do men and women struggle with issues. And, and coming back, I, I just think what it does is that it neutralizes his voice, his role, his significance, his leadership, and more. And uh, it's like if, you, if you're conservative, if you drive a pickup truck or you like a football game or you, you want a rough house with your kids outside and have that influence that a dad brings – to help teach and give gifts like empathy and more. I don't know. It's like uh, we, we've got to shove him over in a corner be, so that we can propagate an agenda that's more uh, focused on the, the soft side, the effeminate side or whatever. Maybe yeah. it's to give lift to, to that voice. You yeah. hear what I'm saying? I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. You had mentioned, for example, that men are to be defenders, to be protectors, to be providers. And more and more, as you see, for example, the rise of feminism, everything is being challenged about what masculine really is. LGBT ideology now says, if you feel like a woman, now you're a woman, even if you're really biologically a man. Can you speak to what the Bible has to say about the unique characteristics that God gave to man in particular when he created him and, and the real definition from a Christian perspective of masculinity? You know, when I jumped into this, my heart found uh, David talking to Solomon. Uh, there he is on his deathbed and he looks over at Solomon and there are a lot of things that a father says to a son Um in those final moments of life. But he chose to say to Solomon, Solomon, show yourself a man. <laughs> and uh, I believe, uh, first of all, Janet, he said that because he knew the challenges of the task in front of him and that there was going to be a lot that would come against him and he would have to stand strong and he'd have to seek out the wisdom of God. And then, therefore he goes on to say, listen, and here's, here's how you do it. You, you follow his ways, his statutes and more. You press into God you understand that um, you are to live out God's calling or his, 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 what God wants to accomplish in and through your life, his purposes in your life. Right. And so as he looks at it, he says that the Apostle Paul says it in the, New, in the New Testament. Listen, be strong. Be a man. Act like men. Yes. Is what Paul said. And you go back and you, you look early on in the book of Genesis that, God told him to what? Rule over the earth, to have dominion over it, to give names and, and to guide and direct and shepherd what was going on. And yet he also recognized that it was not good for man to be alone. He gave one to compliment him, an Azar, one who comes alongside of, and that he uh, gives to Adam Eve. And this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And they two twain shall become one flesh. And in the beauty of that relationship, they come alongside and there's, there's something about that dynamic relationship that brings life and um, uh, a dynamic that ultimately takes them back to what it means to be in a loving, creative relationship um, with God, the creator God. And so um, 
as I look at manhood and uh, the responsibilities, um, he needs to step in. Look at Nehemiah chapter four. Uh, he said, listen, um, you're in a battle. This is a fight out there. Don't be afraid. In other words, because there's a fight and there's challenge and there's responsibilities of defending, of protecting, of providing, <laughs> Nehemiah comes back and said, don't be afraid. That's tough to do when everything's coming against you. But there are times when you have to step in. Remember the Lord your God. And then what did he say in, in, in 14 there? Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Sometimes you have to fight. Sometimes you've got responsibility where you've got to step in. This is not to take anything away from women. This is to say God has created men uniquely. Yes. A man is a man. He is not a woman. Right, right. And a woman is a woman. She is not a man. And you shouldn't be a man-woman or you shouldn't be a woman-man. You know what I'm saying? I do. In light of that, let's take our God-given gifts, our talents, our our. our what we're made for, and use it for His glory. Yeah. Not shy away from it. Not, not hide. Or let's step into the moment and take responsibility for who and what God wants to do in our lives. Let me come back to the research is clear that men do matter. They matter incredibly well. If you look at the role, just on fathering itself. We know that when dads are present and actively involved in the lives of his children, uh, the kids do radically better on everything from academic performance to um, their, uh, their ability to deal with peer pressure to um, how they uh, have success going forward in their life. Even on sexual activity, a dad's, a dad's participation in a meaningful way is much more influential at times than a mom's. Yeah. Um, so when you see that stuff, Janet, it starts catching your eye. You realize, hey, wait a second. Well, we, we, we don't need less, less of men. We need more of men being men. We do. We're going to take a short break. Take It Back is the name of the book. Dr. Tim Clinton with us. And we'll return on Janet Meffer today right after this. This is Janet Mefford. Did you know that persecuted believers are praying to receive their own Bible? Nepo is a pastor in Africa attacked while preaching by extremists, and he's praying for Bibles for former Muslims who are now following Christ. Ada was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Europe, but her godly witness led him to Jesus. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by witches in Latin America, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with them. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word and see many others come to faith? $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven Bibles, and through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's Word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or by clicking the Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Dr. Tim Clinton, president of the American Association of Christian Counselors and co-author of Take It Back, Reclaiming Biblical Manhood for the Sake of Marriage, Family and Culture. And I think, Tim, for example, about that old phrase from Gloria Steinem, the old feminist, that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And yet we're seeing borne out in our culture the result of that really false ideology where we see all of these kids, young boys, as we've been discussing growing up in homes and young girls too, where there are no fathers. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that whole issue of the role of a man in his family and why that is so important for us to undergird and to stress and to fight for. I mean, women need men, children need men, men need to be there. Can you speak to that issue a bit? Yeah, let me give some stats, um, some good news here. 92% uh, agree that men or dads make a unique contribution to his son and or daughter and has profound influence on them. Uh, listen to this statement. While involved mothers can help stave off a teen's sexual activity, dads have up to two times more influence. 76% of teen girls, listen to this, 76% of teen girls said their dad influenced their decision on whether to be sexually active. Wow. Listen to this. Fatherless daughters have a 92% more likelihood to fail in their own marriage. <laughs> when it comes to boys, you think about what, what's the influence of a dad on a boy for good and bad. His presence for good and bad or lack of presence uh, influences, for example, how they develop the, the gift or skill of empathy. The, in other words, the ability to see through another person's eyes. When you talk about um, these kids who are going off, Janet, in school shootings and more, most of them are fatherless boys. Wow. Okay? And their ability to manage themselves under time of stress or duress is kind of missing or lacking. And literally, we talk now in terms of interpersonal neuroscience, how that their brains are not wired right because that, that relational connectivity piece is gone and they've lost, well, maybe they're missing this gift of empathy. You hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's also uh, the gift of a father influences a boy like um, on how to manage his testosterone. And these, these boys grow up, you know how kids will jump in a car and drive down the road 100 mile an hour and not think anything of it because they, they don't understand their own mortality or anything. Right. But how, how do I have what it takes? What does it mean? And how do I develop the skill of what it means to be a man and manage my giftedness, my createdness as God has, has given it? A dad is the one who steps in and does that. Keep going. Uh, Jen, I'll start with one more piece. Frank Pollock talked about what it's like for boys to grow up in fatherless homes and how, de- how devastating divorce is on boys. And one of the pieces he highlighted, and it caught my attention, was 80% of the time, um, these boys are parented primarily by women. Hmm. I think this comes out of the University of Oxford. But desperately wanting male influence. And by the way, 
the parenting piece, and I'll say this carefully, it's usually by women who might not like or even resent the men in his or their life. Hmm, interesting. And sometimes stream something like this. You're going to be just like your father. Yes. Right. And that's the stuff that goes deep into the soul of a boy. You hear what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, yeah. And he's trying to figure it out and make sense of it. And who am I and how do I fit in and what does it mean to be me and to be a man? You can see the influence here. Sure. Absolutely. And the other thing is, when you look, for example, Tim, I was thinking as you were talking about some of these statistics, you look, for example, at the Me Too movement and how all of these women came forward and alleged, you know, all kinds of crimes. Harvey Weinstein went to prison over his crimes. And and women rightly are upset when men abuse them or when men harass them. And that's a legitimate thing. On the other hand, there are a lot of men who, according to news reports now, are more scared of women. Men who don't abuse, men who don't harass. But now that's been an interesting thing to me to see how a lot of men say, well, now I'm scared of women. I don't want to do anything where she could falsely accuse me of this, that or the other thing. And that's kind of odd to me because it would seem that a lot of men, yes, they would be maybe more wary of women in light of the Me Too movement, but also that there might be more of a movement where men said, we really need to respect women. We need to show restraint. We need to show honor to women. And I haven't really seen a lot of talk along those lines. And I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are are about that. You know, um, a lot of women have been violated and hurt. I've spent a good portion of my life trying to champion Um, getting the kind of help and hope and hopefully to help create a future for women who have been violated like that. Right. And so let me, let me, let me say that in, 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 and affirm that we, as we, as a church, as a community, we've got to figure out how to help these women. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, the, the challenge here is not to destroy masculinity. Um, that's interesting. The women I talk to, and it's an overwhelming majority of them, they want their men to be men. Yes, they do. Meaning they love, by the way, they love uh, their husbands. They love their sons. They love their daddies. Yes. Um, they love their brothers and more. And they don't want men getting beat up and, and trashed and, and put in a box and on a shelf like we're seeing society do. No, it's, it's the opposite. Women are saying, please step up. And by the way, and Jen, I think what we've got to do is we've got to own responsibility for what David was saying to Solomon, who, by the way, had a lot of brokenness in him. And David had a lot of brokenness in him. But what David was saying, show yourself a man. And then he was saying this, you do that by doing what? Building character. Exactly. By stepping into, but you do it by stepping in and following the ways of God, his statutes and everything that's there. And when you do that and you realize that like in your marriage, God wants to work through you to influence your wife to become more like him, then your perspective changes. It's not about demeaning or controlling or manipulating. It's about accepting responsibility and loving like Christ did and how he loved the church and gave himself for it. It's sacrificial love. Yes. And so much more. And when we do those things, by the way, it's natural to want to what? Press into that, Mm -hmm. to love that, and to want to follow that even in ways that are honoring and noble and just and right and Christ-centered. That's where we need to go. And so what we tried to do and take it back was to communicate that message. And we wanted men to know also, Janet, that in the midst of 
this journey, uh, you may feel like all is lost or you don't have those skills or gifts, or by the way, you've blown it. Um, what can you do in those moments? And, and so we, create, we created a lot of stories just to help bring it alive. And I, I, I didn't want to develop a book and take it back to be another beat down on men. No, <laughs> we don't need that. We need men to be encouraged. Yes. And, and boy, I'll tell you what, with the current crisis that we're in, we need men to step into these moments and be godly husbands and fathers and men who serve well. And I, I think when, when that starts happening, Janet, I mean, this comes alive. You know that? For sure. Think about what Jesus did with 12 disciples. Think about what it would be like uh, for men to be wholly devoted and committed to accomplishing God's purposes in his life. Yes. What could radically happen? That's right. That's right. And and we women need men to get it right. That's the whole point is that we are very dependent on our husbands and our fathers. And as boys are with their fathers, so are little girls. And it matters because when the family falls apart, Tim eventually society falls apart. Is that not really relevant right now when we're seeing all of the moral breakdown in our society? There is a direct connection to the breakdown of the family, it would seem. And this really needs to be emphasized right now in this moment. We need godly men more than ever before. We need better, stronger uh, men, men of character. And you're right. So goes the family. So goes the church. So goes the church. Yes. So goes the family. Let me read a quote by Dr. Dobson uh, that I think is so uh, meaningful right here. He said, nations are homes, I'll even add churches, that are populated by immature, immoral, weak-willed, cowardly, self-indulgent men cannot, I'll add, will not endure. Right. That's right. That's because God wires, wired us to lead, to have influence, yes. to defend, to protect, to provide, and more. Can I give you a little snapshot of David at Ziklag? Yeah, definitely. One, one of the key passages that Max and I really focused in on was First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 30. David uh, and, his mighty war, and his mighty warriors are out, and uh, what had happened was they had, uh, they had not covered home base. The women and children were back at Ziklag, and they were out doing their thing and maybe um, a little rebellion or stuff going on in the hearts of David and his men. And because they didn't cover their flanks, they weren't defending, they weren't protecting and providing. You hear what I'm saying? It was left open. And what happened? The enemy came in and wiped out the village and took them. Hmm. And the scripture says that they came back to Ziklag. And when they were far off, can you imagine the scene of the smoke and the devastation that's going on. And all of a sudden, the horses just take off on a dead gallop trying to get there. And they realized it was all gone. And they said that Scripture uh, basically portrays a picture of the weeping and the chaos that began to uh, develop in the hearts of those men. And they came against David. You know that? And they cried out against him. They blamed him uh, for what had happened. And David, in the midst of it, cries out to God. He's weeping himself. And he goes off and he does what he, what he learned a long time ago as a shepherd boy to inquire of the Lord. Mm. And Janet, he gets on his knees. Can you see this moment? And he cries out to God and says, God, it's all gone. And why did this happen? And what are we going to do? And God do something. And in the midst of it, God speaks to him and basically says this, they're not, they're not dead. I'm going to tell you what, even more than that, get up. What do I do? You go and you pursue them. You go take it back right now. 
go get them. And can you imagine when David realized that he had received that word from the Lord, and he turns in and looks at his mighty warriors, and all of a sudden what? They see the countenance on his face. It's like a scene out of Braveheart or something. <laughs> and you can, you can sense the unsettledness now in the horses and the men, because all of a sudden the call to battle is what? It's on. And as they jump on, it's like, God told me, listen, they're alive. Let's go get it. And this is the message to a lot of men in this moment. It's not too late. I don't think it's ever too late to become a good dad. Hey, there's a lot of pain and brokenness, but it's not too late. It's That's not great. too late to come back and say, honey, I love you. Yep, absolutely. I want to build our marriage and more. You hear what I'm saying? I love it. Don't- Dr. Tim Clinton. I'm sorry, Tim, we've run out of time, but the name of the book, Take It Back. Dr. Tim Clinton with us. Thank you so much, Tim, for being with us. And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. We've all been told by our governmental officials to lock down and stay home to slow the spread of the coronavirus. But to what extent have those mandates actually restricted the free exercise of religion? The Family Research Council has just come out with a new issue brief on the topic. It's called Restrictions on Religious Freedom During the Coronavirus Crisis. And we're going to find out more about it now from Catherine Beck Johnson, who is FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies and lead author on the brief. Catherine, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. How about you? Very healthy and very grateful to be healthy, especially now. But I'm glad that you guys put together this brief because there are states that are clamping down on churches during this pandemic. Others are allowing more freedom. Can you give us a little overview on the restrictions that you're seeing on religious freedom and church gatherings across America? Yeah, well, we definitely wanted to put out this publication to clarify, you know, what what is constitutional, what is an infringement of rights, because we were getting a lot of questions from pastors and Christians of, you know, what is allowed during this time. So we're seeing a few different um, approaches to religious liberty and also crackdowns on constitutional rights. So I would say the most concerning action that we've seen is some localities not allowing drive-through church services, Yes. yet they're allowing people to drive through liquor stores or drive through restaurants. So that's something that we're seeing that's very concerning, houses of worship being treated differently. We're also seeing churches not allowed to meet and having to abide by the 10-person limit. That isn't as concerning constitutionally, but that is another restriction that we're seeing. Right. Now, with the drive-through services, I know that just recently occurred in places like Louisville, Greenville, Mississippi, uh, some of these locations. But we have seen some pushback, obviously, from some of these churches who say, listen, we're following these orders. But like you mentioned just now, why in the world can't we have a drive-in service? And U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr had come out supporting some of these churches. Has that made any kind of difference? that you know of with some of these mandates? 
Yeah, I think it definitely has. In Greenville, Mississippi, for instance, the city backed off of the order saying they will allow Judge Justin Walker, who was the judge who presided over the Louisville case, who actually has been nominated to the D.C. Circuit. He held a hearing over the drive through ban in Louisville for Easter, and there the city backed off a little bit and said, okay, as long as this is as long as the, the person who keeps this drive through, then we'll allow it. So I think the crackdown from the judges, the crackdown from Attorney General Barr has definitely made an impact in having the city see, okay, we'll back off. This is unconstitutional. Right, right. So when we're talking about the issue of whether or not churches are essential services versus non-essential services, and that's been a bit of a sticky wicket for some of these locations, Florida, I actually had to come back and say, oh, no, churches are essential. Is it wrong for the government to make the determination that a church is non-essential? Can they do that under the First Amendment? Or what are the restrictions, if any, on the government's ability to make that designation? So it depends here. If the government is making the determination that churches are not essential, yet they're saying bowling alleys are essential, or movie theaters are essential, or barbershops are essential, that's when it becomes problematic to the Constitution because other similarly situated places that would have larger gatherings of people have been deemed essential. So that's where we're seeing that religion and places of worship are being singled out, and that's where it's unconstitutional. If they're not deemed essential and there's an overall lockdown, that's where the government might be okay. Okay. How long could the government, through these mandates, shut down churches or at least request that churches continue to keep their services online? Because that's coming up more and more the longer this lockdown lasts. More and more Christians are saying, how long do we have to do this? I mean, what if the, the government decides you can't meet for six months? Do we have to comply with that? Yeah, that, that's something that's definitely a difficult question. And I think it depends a lot on the virus itself. So the government has to have a compelling reason for shutting down church services. So the, the reason becomes less and less compelling as there's less and less of an emergency. And when you're saying something like six months, nobody can meet for church, that doesn't seem as compelling. So it's definitely something that can depend based on the level of the emergency, but I just don't see this the government being able to tell people six months until you can return going to church. Yeah, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not for sure. What, exactly. Yeah. What about some of these pro-life protesters? Because I know David Benham, for example, was one of the pro-lifers who was out in front of an abortion clinic, which is considered in some locations as an essential service, ironically. Um, standing with the social distancing lengths in place between these protesters, doing everything they were supposed to do under the order, and they still got in trouble for gathering because pro-life protesters testing was not considered an essential thing. What is the legality or the constitutionality of that kind of a crackdown? Yeah, that's something, again, the government doesn't seem to have much of a compelling interest in not allowing people to be outside exercising in their free speech while maintaining social distance. It doesn't seem that that's going to really spread the virus. So I think there's a very strong claim that these people are able to stand outside and protest. 
Yeah, I would think so as well. If you can run around your neighborhood, why can't you stand in front of an abortion clinic? I agree with that. Something else that you address in the brief has to do with permitting travel and the restrictions on travel. I know there are some restrictions. You can't leave your county or you're not supposed to leave uh, your home, much less your, your county. But what about some of the movement of pastors and clergy that are affected by these travel restrictions? Are there any would you say violations of First Amendment protections when these governments are doing that? Right. So five states have explicitly deemed travel to religious places of worship as essential. And that's crucial for, let's say, pastors or priests to drive to their church to be able to conduct a live stream service, or let's say a Catholic priest to be able to drive to the hospital and give somebody who's dying last rites. So that's very important that they're able to travel and not be stuck at home. So it would be problematic to prevent these pastors or religious people to be able to drive to tend to their flock. Right. Now, something, I don't know if this has come up or if you have heard of anybody encountering this particular situation, but for example, I heard some people banding about the idea that what happens if you are restricted to an online service only, but then the carriers of the service, the streamers of the service might do like big tech does sometimes and say, we don't like your content. And so we're not going to allow you to stream. Have you seen any situations of that sort where you're allowed to do an online service, but in fact, there were some glitches with the big tech provider not wanting those services to take place? Because I know there has have been situations, for example, where Facebook wouldn't allow the protesters um, to have Facebook pages, or you've had a church, I know, for example, they got kicked off an app because of what they were saying in their online service. How do you come down on those sorts of issues? Yeah, I haven't heard anything like that. As far as I've seen, YouTube and other streaming services have been able, people have been able to access their church services. If that's something that's occurring, that would very much interest us. So I would encourage people to contact Family Research Council and let us know if they either are trying to live stream the church service and they're being prevented, or if they're trying to access a church service and they find that they're being throttled or blocked from that. That's good advice. What would you advise churches to do right now? Should they just heed what the local mandates are and wait it out? Should they have the drive-in services? How are you advising churches right now about some of these restrictions? Family Research Council's position right now is to definitely abide by the local ordinances and local suggestions as long as that is constitutional. So, We would say that if you're able to have drive-in services, if you're able to have live stream services, that would be best at the moment to slow the spread of that. However, if you do see that your local locality or government is preventing you or treating any houses of worship differently, then to please again contact us. Is that something we would like to look at? Very good. Well, you can check it out. FRC.org. Restrictions on religious freedom during the coronavirus crisis is the issue brief. Catherine Beck-Johnson with us. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this.
Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is creating funding difficulties for many of Preborn's clinics with canceled events which help fund the clinic operations. All the while this is happening, our clinics are seeing more and more women in unplanned pregnancies call us as sheltering-in orders have generated more unplanned pregnancies. Our call center is flooded with girls calling. Can you help us in this time of increased need? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To help a mom in need choose life, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now. 855-402-BABY. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. From now through April, Janet Mefford Today is partnering with Bible League to send Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I knew when I saw this article about the risks of homeschooling put out in Harvard Magazine that it would get a lot of traction, and it has. If you're not aware of what I'm talking about, Erin O'Donnell was the writer of this piece, The Risks of Homeschooling, as I mentioned in Harvard Magazine, in which they basically say homeschooling is really terrible. I mean, that, that, that's summarizing it in basically one sentence. But here's part of what it says. A rapidly increasing number of families in America are opting out of sending their children to school, choosing instead to educate them at home. They say that homeschool kids now account for three to four percent of school age children in the United States. And yet... And yet, this professor, Elizabeth Barthelay, I guess you pronounce it, she's a professor of law and faculty director of the law school's child advocacy program, sees risks for children and society in homeschooling and recommends a presumptive ban on the practice. Homeschooling, she says, not only violates children's right to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse, but it may keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. You like how they just kind of squeeze that in there? You know, you're basically an outlier. It made me think about Germany. And you know, that family that had a hard time because homeschooling is banned in Germany. And so they lost their kids and there was all kinds of turmoil about that. They want that here. The liberals want that here. They don't want you homeschooling your own kids. The state is in charge of your kids, not you. Just because you gave birth to them and you love them and they carry your DNA and they look like you and they carry the traits of your family and they are your family doesn't mean that you have any greater right to them than the state, which has no vested interest in them other as you know, other than maybe as workers. No, 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 no. 
This professor says we have an essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling. All 50 states have laws that make education compulsory and state constitutions ensure a right to education, she says. But if you look at the legal regime governing homeschooling, there are very few requirements that parents do anything. Right, because those homeschooling parents are sitting home doing nothing. They're twiddling their thumbs and maybe letting the kids run around the backyard a little bit and then sit and watch TV all day. That's what most homeschooling parents are doing. And that's why you have so many homeschoolers way outperforming their public school peers on tests like the ACT and the SAT. That's that. That's why, because they're basically sitting at home and mom is twiddling her thumbs or taking a nap or what have you and parking them in front of the TV all day. This woman knows nothing because the ideology is coming before the actual knowledge of facts. Apparently, this is really, really fact-free. And, you know, all of these pejoratives, and then they take a swipe at conservative Christianity. They say here, in a paper recently published in the Arizona Law Review, this professor notes, parents choose homeschooling for an array of reasons. Some find local schools lacking, or they want to protect their children from bullying. Others do it to give their children the flexibility to pursue sports or other activities at a high level. But... Surveys of homeschoolers show that a majority of such families are driven by conservative Christian beliefs. What do you mean, but? Why is there a but in front of that sentence? So what? And seek to remove their children from mainstream culture. Yeah, exactly right. You know why? Because in many, many cases, Christian parents want their kids to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which they're certainly not going to get in the public schools. They don't want their kids being taught that they climbed out of the primordial ooze millions of years ago because it's not true. They don't want kids to believe that you should just engage in any and any available sexual idea that is taught to them or engage in anything that Planned Parenthood wants to talk about during the sex ed portion of the school day. They don't want to have an LGBT curriculum. They don't want to have any risk of their children being shot at a public school. There are a few good reasons or have a lousy education. Maybe they want their kids to learn the trivium. And they want their kids to understand logic and rhetoric, and they want their kids to have a really rigorous education, which, let's face it, is generally not going to happen in your local public school system. So quit trying to paint Christians as a bunch of morons. It's not true. Go to any of these homeschooling education gatherings, for example, these book fairs. I went to one of these not too long ago. Phenomenal material. And any parent who's ever homeschooled before, and I've homeschooled myself, you know how rigorous the material is that's out there that you can choose from. And there are tons and tons of good curricula from which you can choose. But it's again, it's all about ideology. In fact, coming up in June, they're going to be having at Harvard homeschooling summit problems, politics and prospects for reform. This is a conference convening leaders in education and child welfare policy, legislators, etc., to discuss child rights in connection with homeschooling in the United States. The focus will be on problems of educational deprivation and child maltreatment that too often occur under the guise of homeschooling in a legal environment of minimal or no oversight. Does that not send chills down your spine? Right, because all those conservative Christians are home beating their children to a pulse. What what are you talking about? They don't want you to have the freedom to school your kids at home. And this is something that has been fought over the years by groups like the Homeschool Legal Defense Association and praise God for them because they do wonderful work. And all of these parents who have fought successfully for the right to homeschool their kids. It's important that we continue to maintain that freedom. We are the land of the free, aren't we? 
Can we maintain that? And this is what I really love. This was over at Medium. This is a, an article that was written in response to the risks of homeschooling. By the way, I got to throw this in as well. There was a picture accompanying the risks of homeschooling in the Harvard Magazine. And it was a homeschooled child in a little house and it was made up of book titles. And one of them was the Bible, you know, because so, the Bible is so oppressive. Kids can't leave their house if they have the Bible taught to them. And one of the other books said arithmetic, except guess what? It was misspelled. They miss. This is Harvard, folks. Originally a place where it was founded to train pastors to enter the Christian ministry. And now they're all about academics, right? But they can't spell the word arithmetic. Hilarious. At any rate, this response article is great. This is the headline on the response article at Medium. Harvard Law School calls for ban on homeschooling. Homeschooled Harvard graduate on why this is wrong. <laughs> it's wonderful. This is a girl by the name of Melba Pearson who says, I graduated from Harvard with honors. In fact, Harvard was the very first school I ever set foot in. The first 12 years of my education, I was homeschooled from kindergarten to 12th grade. I was proud of my school until last night when I read Harvard Magazine's article on the so-called risks of homeschooling. In essence, this article is not an attack on a form of education some might view as lesser quality. In essence, this article is an attack on the fundamental rights and freedoms that make our country, and until recently institutions such as Harvard, what they are. As a homeschooled applicant, I had to work harder than most students when applying to college because she said she knew it would be viewed differently than other applications. She knew she had to prove herself, but she said the skills and values I'd been taught at home by my parents and online teachers enabled me to reach the goal. So it's disappointing that Harvard Magazine's Erin O'Donnell argues it is the government's responsibility to educate the children of this nation. She's not arguing everyone has a right to education. They absolutely do. Rather, she argues the government has more of a right to educate, care for, and control your children than you, their parents, do. And furthermore, they can do it better. The idea that a government already so inefficient and inadequate in so many areas can care for and educate every child better than its parent is wrong. And she goes into some of these arguments, which are really important. And she says this, which I think is a good portion of this article. She says, the information presented in this article is faulty. It is fundamentally untrue that 90% of homeschooling families are conservative Christians. And even if that were the case, why does that matter? Are we not a country committed to freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of religion? Are we not a two-party government wherein roughly 50% of the nation adheres to and promotes conservative or individualist thought? This writer presents no real evidence regarding statistics of abuse, mistreatment, mental health, or success within the homeschooling community. In fact, there's strong evidence to the contrary. Homeschooled students consistently test approximately 30% higher than the national public school average in all subjects tested. Homeschool students consistently demonstrate higher high school GPAs, higher SAT, ACT scores, and higher first-year college GPAs. According to Harvard admissions policies, homeschooled students are not evaluated any differently than students from other educational backgrounds. So this is wonderful to see this girl write this. She made it to Harvard, and yet she was homeschooled. And she finds the errors in this magazine article and points them out. And I think that's so important to have people push back a little bit and say, get off our backs. I mean, isn't America, if nothing else, is a country with a long history of people saying, get 
off my back, going all the way back to the King of England. Get off our back. We have a declaration of independence. No taxation without representation. You're a tyrant. We hereby declare our independence here in the colonies of America. And, you know, it's been a fight ever since to fight for our freedoms. And we need to keep fighting because God made us free. He made us free. And we can't forget it. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us. God bless you. Thanks a lot for being here. And we will see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. God bless. This hour of Janet Meffer Today has been brought to you by Bible League. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's word to 1,200 persecuted believers. $35 sends seven Bibles. And today your gift will be doubled with a limited time match. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD. 800-YES-WORD.